Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Kevin Roos about Future Proof. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out the new and improved website at booksonpod.com. You can now search through episodes by episode number, book title, author's last name, or by category. For instance, go to politics and current events or the technology category to hear my conversation with Nicole Perlroth on This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. This is Nicole Perlroth. My book is called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Kevin Roos is a technology columnist for the New York Times, host of the Rabbit Hole podcast, and a New York Times bestselling author. His newest book is called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you used to scoff at the notion that artificial intelligence would make humans obsolete. But what did you witness at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland a few years back that caused you to think a bit differently on things? Well, I was there in Davos, Switzerland to cover this giant economic conference. I, I call it the Coachella of capitalism. It's, uh, it's basically a bunch of rich people, CEOs, heads of state, world leaders, celebrities, and they all go to the ski resort in the Swiss Alps for a week. And I was shocked at the difference between how people there talked about AI and automation in private and in public. In public, everyone was very optimistic. All these CEOs would talk about how AI was going to let them augment their workforce and they would be able to you know, empower employees to do new and exciting things, um, to supercharge their growth. And then in private, those same CEOs would go to these you know, off-the-record dinners and they would just gossip about how much money they were saving by laying off people using automation, um, how they hoped that they could replace huge parts of their business with software um, and, and get rid of a lot of the people who cost them so much money. So it was really stark as a difference. And it made me want to sort of dive in and really explore what actually is happening with AI and automation. And the second part of it was like, what can we do about it as workers, as humans, as members of society, how should we be adapting to this oncoming era of technological change? You call yourself a sub-optimist on the subjects of AI and automation. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm very optimistic about the technology itself. I think that AI and automation could do wonderful things for us. It could, you know, improve our lives. It could, you know, solve climate change and world hunger and it could cure diseases. And we're already seeing, you know, AI being used to do some of these things. What I'm less optimistic about, what makes me a sub-optimist, is the people. I am very worried about some of the leaders in corporate America, in at tech firms, um, in the investment community, who see this purely as a way to get rid of people not to make their lives better or easier, not to make their jobs more interesting, but purely to save money, cut costs, and become more profitable. And so that's what worries me, is, is not so much the, the technology, is, is who's driving the technology. Well, it's interesting also, you point out that uh, one of the most vulnerable groups right now is middle management, aka the Michael Scotts of the world. How has artificial intelligence replaced a lot of middle management so far? Yeah, that's something I think is not as well understood as it should be. It absolutely is the Michael Scotts of the world who are the targets for this new wave of of automation. You know, when we talk about automation, we generally think about, you know, factory workers, um, people, you know, on assembly lines. But those jobs got automated 
decades ago. And right now, the low-hanging fruit for these new AI-powered algorithms is the kind of analytical work that middle managers do. It's, you know, sales forecasting, it's trend spotting, it's, you know, it's resource allocation and planning. It's the stuff that, you know, employs lots of people who are higher paid, who go to, who went to college, um, you know, who live in big urban metro areas. Um, there's some interesting research out from the Brookings Institution uh, recently that showed that actually these are, these white collar jobs in middle management are the most susceptible to automation. It's not the blue collar jobs. And as the book subtitle suggests, you came up with nine different rules in an attempt to help people understand how to remain human in a world arranged by and for machines a whole lot more each and every day, week, month, and year. Number one is be surprising, social, and scarce. At the root of this rule is a single question you started asking AI experts. What can humans do much, much better than the most advanced AI? And that is to be surprising or unpredictable, be social, which at least for right now, we can seriously outpace the machines. So those two are fairly intuitive for me, Kevin, but scarce is a little bit less obvious. What exactly do you mean by scarce and why are we better than AI at it? Well, scarce jobs is sort of the catch-all third category that I use for jobs that that involve sort of rare uh, tasks, um, rare expertise, rare combinations of skills, or exceptional ability. Things that either would be impractical to automate or unacceptable to automate. So uh, an example of this would be, you know, a person who calls 911 today to report an emergency gets connected to a human being. And it's not because we can't automate that job. Um, we, we know how to do that. We have automated phone answering systems. It's because we assume that that's a very high stakes call. Somebody's reporting an emergency. And so you actually don't want a robot answering that call. You want a human who can sort of understand the nuances and the complexity and can deal with it as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, so that's a, a, an area in which we, we have sort of these, these scarce skills on display, scarce situations. There's also things like like people who are, you know, exceptionally talented, people who, you know, are Olympic athletes are not going to be automated anytime soon. We, we have speedboats that go faster than the fastest human swimmers, and yet we still show up at the Olympics to cheer for our favorite swimmers. So that's an area where we just don't want those jobs to be automated, and, and there are a surprising number of those. What is combinational creativity, and how does it apply here? Well, combinational creativity is, is uh, a writer named Maria Popova's uh, term for kind of combining skill sets from different disciplines. So if you are a, you know, um, zoologist and a mathematician or a musician and, uh, and, and an anthropologist, or if you have an interest in woodworking and a familiarity with JavaScript, um, these are combinations of skills that you know, machines, there's no reason you would train an AI to do both woodworking and JavaScript, right? That would be totally impractical, not worth the time you'd put in. But if you're a human who's, who knows both of those disciplines, you can find these sort of combinatorial creative opportunities, these opportunities to take things from one discipline and apply it to another. And that's a lot of people do that in their jobs today. And so that's something that is harder to automate because it involves teaching a computer to master not just one, but two different disciplines. 
Rule number two is to resist machine drift. Essentially, you're suggesting that people not allow technology to create a sort of complacency. This happens in part with AI that predicts who we are and suggests what we want through recommendation engines. Whereas these algorithms used to be much more focused on reading our minds into guessing what we want, their goal, as you point out, has increasingly become to change our minds, to convince us of what we really want. How do these strategies differ, and just how persuasive has AI become over the last few years? Well, reading our minds is what these algorithms all say they do. You know, the Netflix, you know, you like this show, so you might also like this other show. Or Spotify, you know, recommends a playlist for you based on what it predicts are your personal tastes. And that's all fine and good. But what research has found is actually that these same algorithms are not just reading our minds. They are actually forming our preferences as they as they purport to be um, matching our preferences. There's been some interesting research um, uh, study led by a researcher at the University of Minnesota who tested this on a bunch of college students who basically showed them manipulated ratings for some songs and then had them listen to the songs and rate them. And it turns out that the ratings, this these fake algorithmic recommendations, ratings, were more persuasive to them than their actual experience of listening to the song. In other words, they let the machine's preferences override their own. And so I think that's happening to a lot of us all the time. We think we're just outsourcing our decisions to these recommendation algorithms that live inside you know, everything we, we, we use every day, every tech tool we use. And maybe instead of just giving us what we want, they're actually changing what we want. And I think that's a, that's a, a possibility, a very real possibility, and one that I, I think is concerning. At the end of this chapter on rule number two, you encourage people to take inventory on the decisions that they make based around technology and really consider the decisions that they are truly making. Do you have a good example from your recent life where you realized that you weren't necessarily responsible for that decision? Yeah, well, I, uh, I I once subscribed to one of these wardrobe in a box services that, you know, you you fill out a survey and then the algorithm sort of matches you with clothing based on its perceptions of your taste. And so I did this for a while. I remember I, I got this uh, this bomber jacket and these like skinny jeans and I wore it for a while because I trusted the algorithm's taste more than my own fashion sense. Um, and one day I just remember looking in, at myself in the mirror wearing this outfit and realizing like, I hate this. I don't actually like this at all. This isn't my style. This is someone else's style. This is the algorithm style. And I have become like a, a vehicle uh, of this algorithm's preferences. So, and who knows, maybe the algorithm got a kickback from the bomber jacket maker to recommend that thing, but maybe it was just a bad prediction. But I had let it override my own preferences, my own fashion sense. And as a result, I looked ridiculous. You also recommend people unplug at the end of this chapter, which I'm a huge believer in. And it also brings us to rule number three, demote your devices. What is fubbing and how has research shown the negative effect it has on our ability to actually enjoy being in the moment? Yeah, well, fubbing is a very strange neologism. Um, It's short for phone snubbing. And it's basically when you're, you know, paying attention to your phone when you're in the presence of someone else. Rather than talking to the person next to you, you're paying attention to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And I I get a lot of questions about why this is related to AI and automation. Why is phone use and phone addiction and social media, why is that all related? And it's because that 
the overarching message of the book and the thing that I heard from researcher after researcher is that in order to distinguish ourselves in this coming automated future, we need to be very human. We need to be very distinct. We need to have qualities that make it very clear that we are not robots, that we are humans. Things like emotional intelligence and creativity. And all of that gets much harder if you're just staring at your phone all day. Um, you know, there have been studies that found links between uh, phone use and a loss in emotional intelligence. We actually find it harder to read other people's emotions. Um, and I think that's really worrisome. So there's a, there's a strategic piece of it, as well as a sort of personal health wellness piece of it, which is that using your phone less, becoming more in control of your devices, um, being their boss rather than the other way around, actually will help you become more human and will help you deal with the threat of automation. In exploring this rule, you visited someone who is literally a phone detox expert who offers a 30-day rehab plan to break up with technology or at least use it a little bit less. The first bit of advice she normally has for people is to put a rubber band around their phones. How does this help? Well, the rubber band, this is a, a phone coach named Catherine Price, who was actually my, my personal phone coach. Uh, and she recommends this rubber band method as a first step because it just makes you aware of how often you're using your phone. You know, so much of, it, of this is just subconscious. You know, we grab for our phones when we're bored, when we're killing time, you know, we're waiting for the delivery, uh, you know, guy to show up, we're, you know, we're waiting for the bus, you know, something like that. And making that conscious, putting a rubber band there is sort of just like a little mental speed bump saying, you know, I, oh, I'm using my phone again. Oh, I'm using my phone again. That's really interesting. Why am I reaching for my phone now? And it's just to kind of turn the subconscious conscious. And so, um, you know, I recommend that as a first step to anyone who's trying to, you know, detach themselves from their phone. And uh, at the root of it all, she and you and anybody else who is trying to cut back on phone usage, it's uh, trying to rail against idleness aversion. When you actually went through the phone detox, Kevin, how did cutting way back on phone time benefit you? And how much were you able to cut back by? Well, I was, uh, this was pre-pandemic. <laughs> I should caveat that and say that I probably need to do this again um, pretty soon. But I was able to cut back from about six hours a day to about an hour and a half a day. So it's about a 75% drop. And um, and I was still, you know, plugged in. I wasn't, you know, Amish. I was, <laughs> I was still going on Twitter and checking my email and everything. But I, I was, you know, not just sort of killing time anymore. Um, and I found that that had a few effects. I mean, the most obvious one was it improved the relationships in my life. Um, you know, my, my marriage, my friendships, um, all of that was much better when I wasn't constantly looking down at my phone. Um, it also made me more um, sort of, it, it made me more creative. It made me, you know, I had these sort of moments of inspiration when I was just sitting and looking out the window or, you know, sitting on the subway, not looking at my phone, I would have these ideas that would just come to me. Um, and it sort of felt like that wasn't happening. Um, if I was just stimulating myself using, you know, um, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And then the third one, the, the sort of weirdest one is that I, I started appreciating my phone a lot more. I think, you know, when we first got cell phones, if you remember, you know, your first Blackberry, your first smartphone, they were amazing tools. 
they were, you know, they were sort of useful. They were, um, you know, they would connect you to information and people. It was like having this amazing sort of library in your pocket. And over time, that sort of relationship has changed. And now I think a lot of us resent our phones because they, you know, they control us. They tell us, you know, pay attention to this thing or this person or, you know, they're constantly buzzing and notifying us. And so we grow to resent them. And so I, I found that actually getting back in control of my phone usage actually made me appreciate it more. It made it clear that, oh, this is a tool. And if I use it properly, um, it can be very helpful. Rule number four is leave handprints. How does something called effort heuristic fit in here? Well, leave handprints is a tool for all of us to sort of become more human and more obviously human at our jobs. Um, One thing that I learned from economists and AI researchers is that in the future, there will be basically work that is done by robots and work that is done by humans. And there already is today. A lot of you know, consumer products are totally manufactured and shipped and produced by robots. And that stuff is going to get very cheap. And the thing that is going to have value, the thing that's going to be more scarce and and more valuable in our economy is going to be the stuff that's done by humans, the stuff that machines can't or or haven't done. Um, And this is already happening to some extent. Um, And there's a psychological principle here called the effort heuristic, which says that we value things more when we believe that people worked harder to make them for us. So this is why, you know, you would pay more for a, you know, artisanal uh, candle than you would for a Yankee candle, you know, at a, at a store. It's why you would pay more for a meal from a farm to table restaurant than you would for McDonald's. Um, we attribute, you know, we, we give value to things based in part on how hard we think people worked on them. And so for us as workers, then the key to creating value in this new automated economy is to leave handprints, is to make our work very obviously human so that people know somebody worked very hard on this. You should value it. And that's something that I think applies to journalism. It applies to uh, you know, people making goods and services. It applies to people in hospitality. All these ways in which the, the value that we bring to our work is not just efficiency or accuracy. It is actually humanity. Rule number five is don't be an endpoint. Human endpoints are essentially people whose jobs are to take directions from a machine or serving as a bridge between two machines. Why do remote workers, which is obviously something that has really arisen over the last 14 plus months now, need to be especially cognizant of this? Well, remote work, as I put it in the book, is sort of halfway automated already um, because you are you are losing the pieces of the the workplace dynamic that are more human. You are losing the sort of bumping into people in the hallway, you know, striking up conversations around the water cooler, the sort of workplace culture stuff. It's not impossible to do that stuff remotely, but it's much harder. And so what you end up getting into is a, is a dynamic in which people are being measured the way that robots are measured, by their efficiency, by their output, by their tasks completed. And you lose a lot of the ability to sort of measure and create value in other ways. And so I think remote workers, and I include myself in this because I've been working remotely for the past year and a half, um, need to be very careful, need to find ways to express their humanity in their work and not just, you know, be a, a green dot in Slack or a you know, floating head on Zoom. Um, you know, some of the softer sides of, of working, mentoring, um, you know, advising people, collaborating, that stuff is all super, super important and getting more important as we move into this more automated economy. 
Number six is treat AI like a chimp army. What do you mean? Well, it's an extended metaphor that basically is a cautionary tale about giving AI more power than it can safely handle. Um, and I compare it to, you know, if an army of chimpanzees showed up at your office and offered to work for you, you probably wouldn't just sort of let it in right away. You'd, you might, you know, spend some time training it. Uh, you might give it a few tasks to test out, you know, what the, what the chimps were actually capable of doing. And then maybe you'd set it loose. But you wouldn't just sort of invite it in, give it a lanyard, say, go to work, because that would be incredibly irresponsible. But in the same way that, you know, chimpanzees can be powerful, but you know, need some training. Um, AI is also powerful and needs some training, needs to be tested, makes mistakes frequently. And so this is for, for, for managers and people who, you know, are using AI in the workplace. They just need to be a little more careful than they're being, because I think we've seen in many instances how this can go wrong. Rule number seven is build big nets and small webs. Why do you showcase a town in Ontario, Canada called Waterloo in this chapter? Waterloo is uh, the home of the BlackBerry. Um, it is where Research in Motion, the company that made the BlackBerry, is based. And I have been curious for a long time about what happened there after the BlackBerry took a nosedive and, and sort of the company um, started to struggle. Because unlike a lot of American post-industrial towns who lost their big in industries, you know, Detroit with the car industry, you know, Rochester with Kodak. Um, Waterloo didn't die after its big employer started to struggle. Um, in fact, it's been doing very well. And so I went up there just to sort of investigate to say, how did this happen? What were the keys to surviving this era of technological change? Um, and I found that what they did was a combination of big nets and small webs. They had these sort of large scale, you know, sometimes Canadian social policies like healthcare and, and things like that, that allowed people to get back on their feet more quickly. But they also had what I call small webs, which are these sort of more community-based support systems that help people get back on their feet quickly after a layoff or a downsizing. Um, and so I think there are some lessons in there for all kinds of people who are struggling to adapt to what this new economy is going to look like. Rule number eight is learn machine age humanities. You suggest some essential practical skills for people to understand in the future. Things like attention garden, guarding, room reading, resting, digital discernment, analog ethics, and consequentialism. What are analog ethics? Analog ethics are my way of referring to basically the skills we learn in kindergarten. Um, you know, sharing, playing well with others, um, being a nice person. These are, you know, we, we stop teaching these after a certain age because, you know, it's not seen as a very advanced pursuit. But we need to be teaching them at all levels uh, because there is an incredible need right now in the economy for people with these emotional social skills. Um, there are, you know, I, I've talked to a number of CEOs who say, you know, I can hire engineers. Uh, they're a dime a dozen, but I can't hire people who have sales skills or who are persuasive communicators or are good leaders. Those skills are uh, are very much in demand and there's not enough supply for them. So if I was, uh, you know, the parent of a, of a teenager, I would be advising them not to learn how to code or to, you know, become an engineer necessarily, but to develop these analog ethics, to develop, to really work on being a persuasive communicator, being a good 
teammate, um, making ethical choices, sharing well with others, these things that we learn in kindergarten and then stop learning shortly after. Rule number nine is arm the rebels. That is empowering people to control their own future, which includes uh, how we continue to develop AI. What are some of the ways people are currently trying to ensure a peaceful coexistence between man and machine versus one that takes that unfortunate Terminator turn? There are a number of people in the tech industry and around the tech industry who are doing this work, who are trying to make this technology the best version of itself and trying to avoid some of the more dystopian outcomes. And I I point out a lot of them in the book, but these are important people in this whole equation. Change can't just come from regulators, can't just come from outside the tech industry. It also has to come from inside. And so what I think we're seeing at some of these large companies is workers who are actually influencing the trajectory of their companies. They're saying, we don't want to use AI to you know, promote the um, discovery of fossil fuels. We don't want to use AI to you know, let police departments use you know, racial profiling or facial recognition to arrest more um, black and Latino people. Um, they are actually, these employees at these big companies are actually driving this technology in a safer and more responsible direction. And so I think we need to support them. Kevin, what do you think that social media fits in with all this? Obviously, it does have a certain inherent value, but it feels like it's fueling more negativity than positivity at this point. Yeah, I think it's hard to quantify, you know, the negative and the positive. Uh, I certainly think there are things that are worth preserving about social media, um, but I think there's a lot to worry about. Um, I think in particular, these are case studies in what happens when you over-automate. Um, you know, these companies, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, um, you know, they they have basically de-automated their content moderation in the past few years. They've brought in humans to do this work of determining what is or isn't allowed, what is or isn't hate speech, what is or isn't a conspiracy theory, um, because the machines weren't doing a very good job of that. And so... Right now, we're in this sort of bizarre period where these very tech-centric, very software-driven you know, engineering companies are having to rely on humans because humans are just better at that stuff. And so I think the future social networks will learn from that experience. The next Facebook, the next Twitter, the next Instagram, they will have much more sort of upfront human involvement in moderation because they've learned from the big guys that... The algorithms just aren't very good at that yet. Kevin Roos is a technology columnist for the New York Times, host of the Rabbit Hole podcast, and a New York Times bestselling author. His newest book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this uh, very entertaining and important book. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for listening. Coming up next time, we chat with Rutger Bregman on Humankind, A Hopeful History. We'll talk to you then on Books on Pod. <music>